0: Well, as you can see from the screen here this morning, the title of this morning's sermon is Thank God for Saving and Using Me. You think about the things that you would maybe be thankful for. And people naturally, they celebrate the presence of desired things or circumstances in their lives. So You think about the things that you're grateful for or the things that you're celebrating or you're thankful for. Very often, there are the presence of these desirable things, these things that you really wanted to be present in your life, people or circumstances. And being happy about the presence of things in your life is not the same as having gratitude. So oftentimes you think about people who are happy, they're happy because of certain circumstances, they're happy because of certain things or certain people in their lives, but they're, they're happy, but that's not truly gratitude. Gratitude involves this heart of thankfulness that is directed toward the source of those blessings. Where you would have this spirit and this attitude and this mentality that says, I am not just thankful for the circumstances. I'm not just happy about the way my life is going. I'm grateful and I'm thankful to the one that is providing and undertaking in my life to make these blessings a reality for me. And those blessings are, when when you think of it from a spiritual perspective, those blessings are not always even good from a human perspective. It's being able to give thanks always in every situation, in every circumstance, have this attitude of gratitude, not for the trial or the circumstance that I'm going through specifically, but for the fact that God is with me in the face of that trial, or he's promised to use that trial or circumstance in my life for my good, for my benefit. And you see, biblical thanksgiving, as you're thinking about biblical thanksgiving, it acknowledges God as the ultimate source of every good thing. It's this attitude of gratitude that's directed in a certain direction. It's directed toward, again, the source of these blessings or even God's promises that he's made to us. And so when you're thinking about a Christian having a grateful heart, it's a heart or an attitude of thanksgiving that is directed always to God as the source of these benefits and blessings and good things that are in our lives. And you think about this, though, God is rarely recognized, praised, or thanked, even in our lives, and we're children of God if we've put our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. How often are we really thankful? How often do we have that attitude of praise, that spirit of recognizing and thanking God for the things that he's done in our lives? And though it's not present as often as it should be in our lives, and we're believers. It's certainly not present in the lives of the lost and the unbelievers, the world around us. The Bible in Romans one twenty one says, although they knew God, meaning they'd been made aware of God by virtue of a conscience, by virtue of creation, even after the incarnation of Jesus Christ, by virtue of the very coming of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Jesus Christ. So although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, and it says, nor were they thankful. That's not a a characteristic that comes naturally to us. And so you're thinking about even Paul expressing this attitude of gratitude and thankfulness for what God has done in his life. That's something that only the Spirit of God would allow and manifest in us because by nature we're never thankful for anything. By, by birth, we're never grateful, not truly grateful for anything. We have this sense of entitlement, this sense that we deserve all of the good things that come our way or the things that are beneficial in our lives. And if, and if you don't believe me, just think about some of the things that you see, even in raising young people, or even the mentality of the world around us, that's more and more obviously has this sense of entitlement where I deserve or I should have all of these things, these blessings in my life, regardless of maybe even any effort, or any work that I would be do, that would be done on my part to bring those things about, that I just deserve these things. And I'm in, I have this sense of I, you owe them to me, I'm owed these things. And very often, that's something that has actually been a very negative thing more and more progressively, even in our society, but you see it with, with children too, where they have this sense that if they've always just start to take things for granted, and I deserve this, you should give this to me, I, you owe this to me, instead of having this sense of being thankful. When you think about even times where people are grateful, of course, the focus is usually on temporal or physical blessings. And think about that even in your life, the things that you're thankful for, that you truly are acknowledging God as the source of every good thing in your life, and you, you truly are giving him praise and thanks and a heart of gratitude. What are, what are those things that are more often than not the things that you're grateful and thankful for? Well, very often it's healing. It's uh, financial uh, provision, it's God undertaking with some physical circumstance that you're facing in your life as it relates to even a problem that you're having in the physical realm. It could be even something like a car or a, a home problem, a furnace problem. Maybe this time of year you're experiencing that as it's time for the furnace to kick on, and it's not. Maybe you're like me and you're heating your apartment with your oven, you know, which just for the record, I Googled that. It's not recommended. Your oven is not intended to function also as a space heater. But in truth, it can for periods of time. That's something to pray about, I guess. The the back furnace is not working. So those kids maybe are sitting real close to each other this morning. I don't know. (laughs) But 65 degrees is one thing. Uh, 55 degrees or 45 degrees starts to be another thing. (laughs) But very often when we do have that gratitude and that thankfulness, it's for those physical things instead of uh, being blown away by the spiritual blessings that God has given us in our lives. And it shouldn't be the case that our focus is on these temporal or physical blessings. Every believer has these amazing spiritual blessings that they should be grateful and should be giving thanks to God for. And as we think about that principle, every believer has amazing spiritual blessings to be grateful and thankful to God for. And j- jot that down. Maybe that's the thing, that is the takeaway I want you to have from this message here this morning, that every believer that includes you has all of these amazing things to be thankful for when it, when it involves these spiritual blessings that God has bestowed on his children in his great love for us. And today's, in today's prayer of Paul, it represents a great reminder and a challenge in that, resu- in, in that regard. Paul thanks God for both saving him and then he thanks God for this and I think this is something that probably we rarely do. He thanks God for using him to minister to others. So to our title, thank God for saving me but and thank God for using me. When is the last time you thank God for using a lump of coal, a lump of clay, like you, like me, to serve him through ministry to other people. Thank you for using me, through letting me be of service to you, God. You didn't need me, but yet you chose to use me anyway. You made it possible for me to be used as a part of the fulfillment of your eternal plan, You let me get in on that? A guy who was dead in trespasses and sin, a guy who was hopeless apart from you, a guy who naturally always was seeking his own thing, a guy in whom there was nothing good, a guy who was not seeking after you, a guy who was your enemy, that you would use a guy like that You would first save me from the penalty of my sin and then you would save me in a sanctification, set me apart. You would save me from the power of sin in my life and you would then use me to accomplish your purposes that I could be a part of that. Thank you, God. I'm so grateful that you would use somebody like me. And that's what Paul says in his prayer here this morning. And this realization and appreciation that Paul has, it causes him to transition immediately into a prayer of praise after he has this prayer of thanksgiving. So what we'll see is in effect, again, two separate parts of prayer. One, this prayer of thanksgiving. Thank you for saving me and using me, but then I'm gonna praise you as I realize and I recognize just how awesome it is that you would do that. I'm gonna now praise you. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Oh, Amen. How many of you know that song? Anyone? Yeah, a few hands. Okay, we'll test you out later. We'll see. Should we have, we, we need uh, Miss Tracy back in here to help us with our round. One of, one of the things you should know about Mrs. Tracy Oaks and then is that she didn't do it completely here. We had half and half. This morning, but usually, if we're gonna have a special, we're gonna have a round kind of aspect to to that. And so, maybe we could try that. When I was a kid, we used to sing that song, Now Unto the King Eternal. Uh, We'd always do it as a round, though. So, maybe just show of hands who wants to try that a little bit later. Okay? All right, so six out of a hundred of you. Okay, good. We're gonna, that motion passes. Okay. All right. All right, let's take a closer look at this section. If you haven't turned there, first Timothy chapter one, verse twelve, we're gonna pick up with. We're gonna read through verse seventeen. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. I'm thankful for that. Now he did that even though, or although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me, first, Jesus Christ might show all suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life in the future. Now, our doxology here, our prayer of praise, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll start with verse 12 here. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Now what is my thankfulness for? Because. I thank Christ Jesus because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. So here we see another example of a prayer of thanksgiving. This is our 29th prayer that we've been looking at here in this series on the Apostle Paul's prayers. And here's another one that's a prayer of thanksgiving. Now remember, prayer is nothing more than a person who is talking to God, a believer who is talking to God. A child of God talks to his heavenly Father like A physical, on the physical realm, you might talk to your earthly father. This idea of having a conversation or talking to God. There's nothing more to it than that. Now, when you talk to somebody who you have an intimate, close, personal relationship with, you might express any number of different things to them. Now, imagine the conversations you've had with your father or your mother or maybe a close friend or a brother. Now, in those close, intimate relationships, different kinds of things come up in those conversations where you might say things like you might ask for help. It's very common for a son to ask a father for help. Dad, could you help me with fill in the blank? It's very common for that to be true. Now, it's less common for a child to say, thank you, Dad, for helping me with this or that. Or I praise you, Dad, for being so wonderful, being so awesome. I don't deserve to have you in my life, Dad. But I thank God for you anyway. But you could say that to your father, right? And that'd be a way of expressing a feeling or an idea, a thought, in a in a personal relationship that you have with God. And so we've looked at all these different varieties to prayers. Sometimes you would ask your dad for help with another person's problem. Sometimes that happens too. Dad, can you help my buddy John here with his car? Because you've been helping me with my car. Can you now help him? Or dad, I have a so-and-so that I'm aware of, and I'm going to be going over there to try to help him. Could you could you help me with that too? And then we call that an intercessory prayer, a prayer on somebody else's behalf. So anyway, we've seen a bunch of them, but here's another prayer of Thanksgiving. Now, Thanksgiving is a byproduct of an internal heart of gratitude, which itself is an expression of one who recognizes and appreciates the blessings in his life. You would never express or have this internal heart of gratitude unless you recognized and appreciated how blessed you were, these blessings that you have in your life. And so that's one of the things that I've been taken with in this series is that as Paul gives thanks about various things in his life, That really is a reflection, though, of the fact that he appreciates and understands and recognizes that his life is blessed. You know, you're never, you can't have the gratitude, the heart of gratitude and the expression of thanksgiving to the one who's responsible, the ultimate source of those blessings in your life, if you're not even aware of, you don't appreciate, you don't even recognize the blessings that you have in your life. And so some of it is just wake up. Like, some of it is just, we need to open our eyes up and look around and say, count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. And you think about these songs, why do we sing them? Those, that's a reminder, right? Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. Why? Because we naturally take them for granted. We naturally forget about them. We naturally focus on everything that's not going right in our lives. We focus on the the negative side of things. By by virtue of our very nature, uh, our natural man always gravitates towards the negativity, the negative side of things. And the truth is, even if you're not a child of God, even if you didn't understand that God was the source of these blessings in your life, the fact is that even if you're just a person who has rejected God living in this country today, you have many things that are great and wonderful in your life that exceed and are so much greater than anyone else anywhere else in the world, period and you could even as even as an unbeliever there's there's unbelievers who even have a greater sense of recognition of just how blessed their lives are than even the child of God who should be clearly aware of how much blessing they have how wonderful God's provision has been for their lives both physically and spiritually both sides of it but especially the spiritual realm how they've been blessed with every blessing how they've been allowed to become partakers of even the divine nature. You gotta be thinking about it. You gotta be meditating about it. Be aware of it, be intentional about, Lord, I'm just gonna take a moment to think about and consider all that you're doing and have done and are going to do in my life. That will change your very heart. It will change your heart from one of entitlement to one of gratitude. Gratitude one of taking things for granted to one of praising the Lord and extolling his virtue, singing his praises to others for how wonderful a Savior you have and how good he has been to you. And you'd be saying things like, God is good all of the time. And all the time God is good, you'd be saying things like that to others. You'd be overwhelmed by it. So then, as Paul recognizes that, he directs his prayer and his gratitude to Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you to note that. I think Christ Jesus our Lord. And here, just in passing, here's another example of a prayer, a prayer of thanksgiving here that is addressed directly to Jesus Christ. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, has counted me faithful and has put me in the ministry. That's who his thanks is directed toward. Now, what is Paul specifically thankful for? Three things. I just mentioned them. These three specific actions of Christ are identified. Now, I want you to notice this. Paul is not the focus of any of this. As we go through this section, he's not making himself the focus. He's putting the focus on Jesus Christ and what Christ has done. All of the action is on Christ's part. How Christ has undertaken in his life. See, the gospel message correctly understood puts all of the emphasis on God and what he's done for sinful man how God has provided for sinful man and how man just accepts that as a free gift apart from works the Christian life correctly understood always puts all of the focus and the emphasis on God's grace and God's provision as God undertakes to enable and equip and direct in the lives of a Christian to make the Christian life possible when we make one choice. A, we have a positive volitional response that trusts God, believes God presently in terms of, is convinced in the, presence that, in the present that God is the only solution to us living a life that would bring him honor and glory, that the power and the resources and the direction and the enablement, it all has to come from him. That spirit of complete dependence on God to do in and through us what we could never do in and through our own strength, that same mentality has to accompany our Christian lives. Now, does that mean we have no part in it? No. God doesn't force us to appropriate his power. He doesn't force us to follow his will. He doesn't force us to follow his lead and direction in our lives. He says, choose you this day whom you will serve. And that's, that's our part in it is where is our gaze going to be fixed? Are we going to be directing our eyes to him, trusting him, resting in him, believing in his power and promises so that he could then undertake through, the, through his spirit to then produce in and through us that fruit that comes from abiding in the vine. But our part is to stay connected to him, to stay dependent on him. And as we do that, then he has the ability to work and undertake in our lives, but the action is always God working in and through us. We're not producing a certain kind of life. God produces that life in us. And you can find that in many, many passages we call them divine passives, where we are the beneficiaries through faith of God's actions and undertaking in our life, again, not against our will. Our part is to have a favorable disposition toward God so that we'd be open to allowing him to do his work in us as we would draw nearer to him and then let him Produce that kind of mentality and that way of life in us. We would walk by means of, which means to be independence on, walk in dependence on the Spirit of God. And when that's true, we would not fulfill the lusts of, our, of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Again, I say walk in the Spirit by means of the Spirit. And so I hope you see that here. Christ Jesus is the one producing the actions, and there's three specific ones. The first one is, He counted. Me faithful. Second one is he put me into the ministry. And the third one, though not in this order in the verse, is he enabled me. Jesus Christ enabled me. So he counted me faithful. He put me into the ministry. And he enabled me then to actually perform or carry out that work of ministry that he allowed me to be a participant in. A part, to partner with him as I partner with other believers who are willing to be led and directed by him and empowered by him. So first one here, counted me faithful, as we think about the actions of Christ. So Christ counted me faithful. And the idea here is Christ in his foresight, he knew Paul would prove faithful or trustworthy in the future as a result of a consistently dependent and humble mindset. It's not that Paul was going to be consistently faithful and trustworthy as a result of his own character or as a result of how hard he was trying to be faithful and trustworthy. What Christ knew he had the foresight to do in appointing Paul to ministry, The specific ministry I think is in mind here beyond just the general ability of every Christian to serve the Lord, this apostolic ministry that we'll look at in a minute. But Christ knew that Paul would be the kind of person who would be faithful and trustworthy to have this consistently dependent and humble mindset that would allow then the power of God to work in and through him so that the spirit of God could accomplish this work of the ministry that God had called Paul to just like he calls every believer to the work of the ministry. And even as you think about the purpose even of church leadership, it would be to even equip spiritually gifted congregational, a spiritually gifted congregation, individuals for the work of the ministry that some person would teach others and those people would teach others but that the congregation then having been reminded of and taught about the things of Jesus Christ that we could work together collectively as a body a, a united body that is tightly joined together that is striving together that has unity of purpose unity of direction unity of mind and thinking as we're striving together for the same things which is the building up of the body in love and the furtherance of the gospel The proclamation of God's message of good news to a lost and dying world around us. And so you think about this. He counted me faithful. He considered that I would be faithful to Him, is the idea. Christ considered, or He determined that I would be. I would be the type of person who would see that apart from Him, apart from you, I can do nothing, just as Jesus had said in John 15 that. that the Apostle Paul would consistently have that mindset. Yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. That idea that it's, it's not I, it's not me that's gonna do this. It's the power of the gospel. The spirit of life and godliness has given me freedom over the law of sin and death. Why would I then continue to live in a, live in a manner as if I was lost when I've been made to be a child of God and been given and entrusted with a mission, a mission to proclaim and be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So as you think about, he considered that I would be faithful to him. I want you to notice this though. Paul's faithfulness had nothing to do with any inherent faithfulness on his part. But Paul's volitional willingness to appropriate the grace and enablement of God, which in turn rendered him trustworthy. Paul wasn't trustworthy because he was trying to be trustworthy. He ended up being trustworthy as a byproduct of this volitional willingness on his part to consistently appropriate the grace and the provision and the enablement and the power of God working in his life. And what was the result of that dependent mindset? The result of that dependent mindset was that God rendered him made him somebody who was faithful, somebody who was trustworthy. And I think we cannot overstate that. We can't talk about that too often because there's nothing about living the Christian life that can be performed through the flesh. I couldn't save myself from the presence of the, sorry, the, penalty of sin. I can't save myself from the influence or the power of sin in my life either. Now, if you don't believe me that it was ultimately God who would render Paul to be faithful, we have this passage in First Corinthians, where I'm just going to touch on the key part here in the last part of the verse. But he says, yet I give judgment. Now, he's, I'm rendering a judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy, meaning I didn't deserve this, his mercy and grace, again tied together, they're inseparable, has made trustworthy. Who made Paul trustworthy? This idea of being counted faithful. He considered that I would be faithful to him because he knew that I would be appropriating the grace and enablement of God as I went and went about my life. And that would make me trustworthy is the idea here. See, it was God that made Paul Trustworthy as he yielded himself to the direction and the provision of God working in his life. Now, the second thing that Jesus Christ is—he's thankful to Jesus Christ for—is for putting me into the ministry, and some translations have the word "service" there, uh, allowing me to serve Him, putting me into the service of Him, or putting me into the ministry. Now, this word often refers to a specific assignment or role. And that's where I have a take that takeaway where, in my estimation, he's not just referring to a general ministry or service to the Lord. He's referring to this very specific mission that he was given as the apostle out of due time, the apostle to the Gentiles who would be the one who would take the gospel message and, and really be a part of sort of jump-starting that movement as the message would start to make greater inroads apart from Jerusalem. And so if you're familiar with the early church story, again, Jesus, before he left, he said, you will be witnesses of me. You'll be witnesses of me in Jerusalem center, Judea, a little bit farther out, right? Samaria, a little bit farther out, and the uttermost parts of the world. But initially, in the early church narrative, the gospel message, the apostles, the other apostles, were reluctant to bring that message outside of Jerusalem now by virtue of two things the gospel message did end up spreading one of those two things though that are identified in acts or in our bibles one of them was persecution as a result of persecution jewish believers were forced to flee and run from Jerusalem and they fled to other pockets of Jewish communities that were spread out throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And so what came with them then? Well, they were believing Jews, so what came with them was the gospel message came with them. And then the second part about this historical spread of the gospel message beyond the confines of Jerusalem was the mission and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, which uh, the lion's share of even the book of Acts is a record of, his Various great mission trips that he took, bringing the gospel to different places. Now, of course, did he bring the gospel to everybody in those communities? The answer is yes. He started generally with the synagogues, with the Jewish people, and then the gospel would be presented to the community as a whole. And then In most instances, he would be attacked and driven out of the town and have to go to the next town down, move along his way because of the amount of persecution and pushback that he would face. In a few select cities, the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message was embraced. And then Paul was able to stay with those believers sometimes for up to two years, a year and a half or two years at a time. And he was able to help them to grow and teach them a lot of other doctrines above and beyond the doctrines that he was able to teach them in short periods of time, including the gospel. In any event, so we have this, this word that oftentimes it refers to a specific assignment or special assignment or a specific role. And Paul is likely referring to that as a special assignment that he was given uh, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. We have that here in Acts chapter nine, verses 15 through 16. The Lord, again, the one called out of due time, here we have, the Lord's speaking to the Apostle Paul. Well, he's actually not speaking to the Apostle Paul. speaking about the Apostle Paul. For the Lord said to him, and he's, he's telling somebody, go and meet the Apostle Paul and assist him. And they're like, this was the chief persecutor of the church. This was a guy who was dragging women and men out of their homes. This was the guy who was responsible for the deaths of many early Christians because he was so zealous in his opposition to the message of Jesus Christ. This is a person who stood by while, and in fact was in charge of, so to speak, he was the authority behind the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He was holding the coats, or the they placed the coat, their coats at his feet while they went and grabbed stones to stone Stephen to death. The apostle Paul was there and now he's saying to another early church believer here, go and meet him. He's now gonna be called and used by me for the mission now of proclaiming Jesus Christ. And so naturally there was a little bit of fear, a little bit of skepticism. But the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine. For what purpose? To bear my name before gentiles before kings did Paul proclaim the gospel to kings yeah and the children of Israel for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake is serving the Lord all puppies and rainbows and fair skies no if you if you love me and if you serve me you will suffer for my name's sake is a promise that God made. So this idea of physical prosperity for those who are faithful to God is a lie. That is is an absolute fabrication of the promises of the word of God. And the promises of the word of God do not focus on the temporal realm. The focus of the promises of the word of God is that if you serve me, if you're faithful to me, you will suffer persecution for my, my name's sake. Now, he doesn't say what level or extent of suffering you'll face, but I promise you, even as you sit here this morning, if you are faithful to consistently allow the Lord to shine his light through you, people aren't going to embrace that. What does the Bible say about man's response to the light being shined in their eyes? They hate it. They hated me first, and they're going to hate you because they hated me. It says in John 3, 19 or so, that this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. People aren't gonna thank you for coming into the darkness with the bright light of Jesus Christ. They're gonna respond negatively to that, and that involves includes everyone in your life, including carnal believers. I say that again, including carnal believers. If you are living as if you're lost because you're not presently appropriating your position, your identity in Jesus Christ, and you're bucking the Lord, you're resisting the Lord, you're fighting back against the Lord and distancing yourself from the Lord, do you want anything to do in those moments with the light of Jesus Christ? And the answer is no, but do you need it? That's what you need. You need somebody to shine the light in your eyes so you can have your eyes enlightened again and you can get your gaze fixed back on Jesus Christ instead of yourself or the world or your circumstances or your trials. But generally speaking, is a carnal believer who is resisting the Lord, are they happy to see a spiritual-minded believer who is enjoying the Lord? And the answer is in many instances no. No because they're convicted about what they're doing, about their present mentality. They're not excited and thankful to see you. They want nothing to do with you, which is a part of why you're not going to see them, generally speaking, at church. The Word of God is convicting. So to read God's Word, hear God's Word, talk, be around people who want to converse or fellowship around God's Word, when you're stuck in a rut... And you just want to wallow in it? Is that what you're going to want to hear? Not if you're focused on wallowing. Now, if you get to you come to a place where you're tired of that, guess what happens? Well, generally speaking, you start seeking out other believers again. You start picking up this book. You're tired of it now. Start dusting that Start dusting that off. Start talking to God a little bit more. In time, maybe even want to come out and hear teaching of the Word of God and be around other believers. Seek them out. Because God's pulling you out of that. Is anybody immune from that? The answer is no. All seek their own by nature our natural tendency is to do our own thing. Our natural tendency is to live life in a way that doesn't include the Lord, isn't sensitive to him, isn't intimate with him. And as a byproduct of that, it's not even the focus. The the issue is we're not enjoying him. But as a byproduct of that, then we don't take his word to heart. We don't trust what he says about things that would be beneficial in our lives. And so we ignore those things too. And it's just a, it's a spiral. It starts to build steam and eventually it could be years that we've spent apart from him. And that's the main issue is it was spent apart from him. We're not enjoying him. So you think about this ministry. Any ministry to others ultimately involves serving the Lord. He put me into his service or service to him. I like the way that some of those translations have that. He put me into service to him. He counted me faithful. He knew that I would appropriate his grace and I would trust him. He put me into service. He gave me the specific assignment and role, but he put me into his service. Awesome. Are you thanking God for that? Are you thanking God that He would use you and put you into service, into His service, when you're willing to trust Him and enjoy Him and walk with Him? Now, the last thing that we have here, which is actually the first thing in our verse, is I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. What's the third action verb here? Well, He counted, He put me, and now He's enabled me. Now, enabled me involves strengthening or making someone more capable or able to accomplish a task or to serve in a specific capacity. He made me capable. I love that. He enabled me. I'm thanking God that he made me capable of serving in this specific capacity that he assigned me. So he, he came up with a plan that called for me or involved me in me serving him and being an ambassador for him and be a reflection of his light and being a conduit that he could work through. And then in doing that, he then strengthened me. He made me capable of accomplishing that task. You see, without him, I couldn't do it. So when you think about, you just start focusing on the directives of the Bible. God says, this is my instruction for you. I I want this. This is my will for you. You can't divorce God's will for your life from the fact that he says, apart from me empowering it though, that will not be possible. This here is gonna be made possible by the power of my spirit working in, through, in and through you as you're enjoying me. So the progression is, where is my gaze? Am I enjoying the Lord? Am I drawing near to him? Am I, am I fixed on him? Second part is, am I, am I resting in him? Am I trusting in his provision, enablement and his power? Am I having my confidence in his ability to empower and to work in my life? Then the last part of it is, am I going to then be able to fulfill this mission or this ministry or follow even the directives and instructions that he has for my life in a way that would benefit me, be useful to others, and bring glory to the Lord? Chain of thought there, the train of thought goes that way. Now you think about some passages about this. We have Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How am I doing these all things? Not through my own strength, but through Christ's strength. Now, this is 1 Timothy where Paul's writing this letter to Timothy. But in 2 Timothy, as he is facing imminent death, the end of his life, he's talking about how he's been forsaken by everyone. He's talking about people in his life that have left him. And he's facing dark times and he doesn't have a support system in place. Those people have left him. So he's mentioning that to Timothy as he's saying, Timothy, come quickly, my life is near its end. He's saying, bring the scripture with me, bring the writings, bring John Mark with me, who many of you know earlier on in Paul's life, he had said, John Mark is useless to me. I'm not gonna minister alongside of this guy because he's unreliable and the mission is too important for me to be ministering alongside of him after he abandoned the the mission trip on our first go-around. So that's what he said about him. And now as he's dying, he's saying, bring John Mark to me because he's useful to me. And then he also says, bring my cloak, bring my jacket. But he says, come quickly. Because my life is about to end. But in the face of being all alone and abandoned by man, what does he say about his God? He says, But in, fi- in spite of being abandoned by man, he says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. Where did the strength come from? He didn't say, I, I, I stood strong. Everyone left me, but I stood strong. No, he says, The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. For what purpose? so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. There's some disagreement about what that might mean, probably a reference to Nero might have been a reference to his first trial versus his second trial. Might have been a reference to the idea that he's still alive, though his fate has been sealed, as I understand it. But in any event, where does the strength come from? My help comes from you. My strength comes from you. So that's where we have these three actions on Christ's part. He counted me faithfully, put me into the ministry or service to him, and he enabled me. He made that all possible. Now, he did that in spite of a few things. He did that in spite of these facts. Even though, verses 13 to 14, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Where are these things sourced again? In Christ Jesus. But I wasn't, there was nothing special about me. There was no reason why God would count me faithful, put me into the ministry and enable me. He did it even though I didn't deserve it. I'm a testimony to God's grace, we'll see, is what he's really saying. I'm a trophy of God's grace. Now, this is a continuation of this previous verse. So he's saying, although or even though, God did all this in my life, even though or despite the fact that I was formerly, and you could summarize, formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, all of those are talking about opposing God. I was formerly opposed to God, but yet in his grace and in his mercy, he said, saw fit to use me anyway, to enable me anyway, when I responded to the message of Jesus Christ as I was confronted on the road to Damascus. So this summary is ultimately true of everyone before they are saved, that they're opposed to God. Now, these specific things are generally probably true also before you get saved. To blaspheme God is to use the Lord's name in vain in a sense, to not speak correctly or hold God in the proper reverence. Persecute the Lord would be to oppose him. Persecute those who do have their trust in him. Insolence is to sort of add insult to injury while you're persecuting people to, to mock them or to abuse them. And that's who Paul says I was. Now, some of the things that I take away from this, and I think it's important, is that remembering the pit that you were dug from, it should make you gracious. It should make you gracious. You were, you were dug from a pit where God saved you in spite of yourself when you had absolutely nothing to offer him. There was nothing attractive about you at all. You weren't, it wasn't because you were so godly that God sought you out. You were ungodly. It wasn't because you were so righteous that God sought you out. The Bible says that you were completely unrighteous. That even your works of righteousness were filthy rags as it related to God. It wasn't because you were so desperately seeking after God that he sought you out. The truth is that you none seek after God. They've altogether become unprofitable. You you weren't so attractive to God, I guess is the point. God looked at you in your sinfulness... While you were dead in trespasses and sins. While you were God's enemy and he made you alive through the person and work of his son, through faith alone as you put your trust and confidence in what he had already done for you. That's how he made you alive. But he did it even though there was nothing you had done to deserve it. That's why it's called grace. It's God's unmerited favor that's bestowed on those who don't deserve it. There are none righteous, no, not one all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. So as you think about what you were saved out from, that should make you gracious as you look at others that you are seeking to minister to. Now he says this, although I was formerly, again, summarizing, opposed to God, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now Paul did commit Paul did not commit these sins in defiance to what he knew to be right. His unbelief was caused by his ignorance. One of the things you know about the Apostle Paul is that he was very sincere. He was very zealous in his following of the Mosaic law. He, he was doing it thinking that he was pleasing God and bringing God glory because that's all he had ever known. Now, was he, was he still probably doing other things where he was violating God's law intentionally, or he was, he was doing things knowingly, and the answer is, of course, yes, but as a general rule, Paul's focus in his, in his perspective, the things that he was all about, the things that he was living life for, was actually a human attempt through human power, through human strength, to please God by following the rules or the law that God had given to the nation of Israel. And so that's what he means when he says he did this in ignorance, in unbelief, because he didn't know any different. Now, what does ignorance have to do with obtaining mercy? Well, the purpose of this statement is not to qualify those who could appropriate God's mercy and grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's not saying only those who sin ignorantly are capable of receiving God's mercy. Grace. what he's trying to communicate is that th- those that are rejecting God's truth and ignorance while actively desiring to know God and respond to his truth are much more likely to be saved than those who are rejecting God through willful or, de- willful or deliberate defiance and rebellion against God. Willful suppression of the truth. You know, there's all kinds of different people that are out there. They're all sinners. None of them deserve Salvation, just like none of us deserve to be saved. We were all sinners as well. So there's no exceptions in that realm. All have sinned. But there are some who are actually seeking God's truth, who are actually interested in finding the answers to questions about spiritual matters. They're actually sensitive to their their seeking after truth in some way. But there's other people that you run into. Again, all still sinners, but you run into them who are openly hostile and defiant in their opposition against God and have absolutely no interest in spiritual matters or spiritual truth. Now, between those two categories, one is open to hearing about, being, having explained to them the life-saving message of who Jesus is and what he's done, and the other won't even hear it. Now, if you can't hear it or you don't even hear the me- you don't even have an opportunity to listen to and have explained to you the message of salvation, how are you going to be saved? You're less likely to be saved. Verses like even as I was studying yesterday, near me was two Mormons who are talking together doing their required assignments as they have to read through these different materials that they have to work through. It's all on their tablet and they have to ask each other these questions and work through these workbooks and they have to go through all of these hoops in their pursuit of being accepted by God because it's a works-based system. It's not a faith-based system. It's faith plus works and it's unfortunately, it's faith apart from Jesus Christ, too, because they don't acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, That is full, that He's fully God and He was the fully satisfying propitiation or satisfying payment for man's sin. But they're sincere. They're interested in the things of faith. Now, is there, is there a likelihood or a possibility that Uh, Being interested or being more open, at least to discussing or considering these things, because I've never run into a Mormon missionary. They all refer to themselves as missionaries. Maybe we should take a note from that. But elder so-and-so or sister so-and-so on their name tags, I've never found one yet who didn't want to talk about the things of faith. Wasn't willing to look at the word of God didn't in fact say that they put a high value on God's word. Now, does that mean that they're going to get saved? No, but they're, they're rejecting God in ignorance, not, willful, not willfully suppressing the truth. They think they actually know the truth, and that's what they're presenting to others. So that's what this is referring to. I obtain mercy. I'm doing this ignorantly in unbelief. God God saw that my heart was in the right place in a sense that I was actually trying to serve God. I was just going about it the wrong way because I was rejecting his son and his son's work on my behalf. Now he goes on to say, and the grace of God was exceedingly abundant with faith and love. God's compassionate forgiveness is accompanied by his undeserved favor. He forgave me. That's what we're talking about with mercy, his compassionate forgiveness, uh, how he paid the penalty, the debt that I owed, and he forgave my sins by having died in my place and having satisfied the just demand of death for sin as God's justice was satisfied by the sacrificial, substitutionary payment of Jesus Christ on my behalf is what he's speaking to. But that mercy, that, that steadfast love and that compassion that God had for me, it was accompanied by his undeserved favor, his, his gracious disposition toward me. And it was exceedingly abundant and accompanied with faith, his faith and love. Now, in considering his life before and after his conversion, Paul's impressed by the continual presence of God's superabundant grace. This word exceedingly abundant is only the only time you can find this word. But it's like, it's superabundant. It's not just abundant, it's superabundant. So we have this superabundant grace in and through all of it as he's thinking about his life. God, his, his life, and even God's desire to save him, and God's willingness to use him. And so you see this, he's talking about the abundance of God's grace. Romans 5.20 says, the back part of it says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, talking about a similar word, though slightly different. This abounding or abundant, exceedingly abundant grace, it knows no limits. Where However great sin was, grace was greater than that. God's favorable disposition, his his bestowing of something we don't deserve on us, that was greater than all of our sin. Now, Paul consistently attributes any success in his own life to God's grace. That's what he's talking about here. I obtained mercy, and it was God's grace that was exceedingly abundant with faith and love in my life. That's how I was able to. That's a part of the enablement that he's talking about in verse 12, how God is the one who undertook and provided with this exceeding abundance in his gracious favor toward me that I did not deserve to make my life successful in terms of serving him in a way that would bring him honor and glory. So we have 1 Corinthians 15:10 where he says, "But by the grace of God I am what I am." He attributes any success in his Christian life to God's working in his life. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. What is the key to our success, friends? The key to our success is not how hard we're working or how hard we're trying, but how much we're trusting and allowing God's grace to work in and through us so that God can work in and through us to produce a way of living that would be useful, that it would would be beneficial, that it would be valuable in light of eternity. And so he gives God the credit for that. Then he goes on as more of an aside here to make the statement in verse 15 that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so as you're looking at this verse, you're saying his whole discussion is I'm so thankful to God for saving me and using me. It was Undeserved in every way I was God's enemy but he reconciled me to himself through the work of his son he then empowered me through his spirit and he blessed me with abundant grace so that I could live my life in a way that would bring him glory and that was God's plan that was God's mission as it related to all men as he's thinking about Jesus Christ that Christ Jesus came not to serve but not not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many this is the reason that he came, and you can say, well, that's in, in part true. He came also as the messiah the 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 promised the long promised messiah offering a kingdom to the nation of Israel but yet God in his foreknowledge also knew how that would turn out he also came to seek and to save those who were perishing he came as the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world not in a temporal way but in a permanent eternal forever way and so what he says here this is a saying that's worthy of all acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners how did he do that by dying on a cross on Calvary as he paid sin's debt for each and every one of us. He became sin for us even though he knew no sin. That's how he did it. So when you say born to die upon Calvary, you can't really take much issue with it when you look at a verse like this that says the reason that Christ came was to save sinners. The only way that could be done is if there was a death payment, a satisfying payment of a death for sin. As his blood had to be shed for man's sinfulness and it, you know, it, Order for God's justice to be, for there to be atonement and God's justice to be satisfied. There was no other way. Apart from the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sins. And Christ was the one who shed his blood for you and I. And he's saying this is his reason for coming, to save sinners. Now, what does he say about himself? I am chief. Notice how Paul connects his personal experience to God's plan for all mankind. This is truth that is worthy of universal acceptance. He's saying, I was saved personally as a part of Christ's overarching mission to save sinners in general. I specifically, though, was saved as a part of this plan that Christ had to come into the world to save sinners, the totality of all sinners. Now he says, of whom I am chief, he's referring to I'm the chief sinner. I view or perceive myself as first or ranking above all others in terms of sinfulness. So you look at this, and I, I wanted to say this real quickly, Paul's sense of himself or the way that he sees himself, it develops over time. One of the first like self-assessments or things that he would say to describe himself is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 9, one of the earlier letters that he wrote. And he calls himself the least of the apostles in that letter. A couple of years later, approximately two or three years later, he writes Ephesians. In Ephesians 3.8, he describes himself as less than the least of all the saints. So now not just the least of the apostles, less than the least of all the saints. And in the last letter he writes here, as he's about to be executed, he describes himself of the ch- as the chief of sinners. You see, as, as we continue to grow in our faith and understanding, we'll think less and less of ourselves. We'll have more and more humility, and we'll think more and more of, about the awesomeness that God would use us in spite of ourselves. Verse 16, he says, However, for, even though I was the chief of sinners, because I was the chief sinner, I obtained mercy... That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And the summary of this is he's just saying, God wanted to use me as the chief sinner, he wanted to use me as a trophy of his grace. It's a fascinating verse because it really summarizes the humble mentality of Paul. He dramatically here declares himself to be a showcase for God's unlimited patience, mercy, and grace. I'm, I'm exhibit A as the worst of the sinners that Christ still came to save and was willing to find faithful, to use or entrust with a mission, the ministry, to give me a mission, and then to enable me. I was the chief sinner, and yet God in his grace and his mercy was willing to do that for me. And if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. You might want to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, as it talks about all believers being held up for all of eternity as trophies of God's grace. We're all illustrations of God's grace. If he can use somebody like me, he can use you. If he can save somebody like me, he can save you is the idea. Then we end with this doxology, this praise. In light of all that, I have no choice but to spontaneously, I have this praise that I want to direct to God. Now to the King Eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. For the sake of time, we're gonna have to leave it to Brent to have you do the round. Next next week, we'll do the round. Be be ready. Study the lyrics here. So now unto the King Eternal immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So yeah, that's the gentle tune. Work on it. Be ready. Be fired up. We'll maybe do this half, that half. We're going we're to drop that on Brent. So we end here with Paul focusing on the greatness of God as it pertains to his provision for sinners, in light of what was just said about God having a merciful and gracious, long-suffering disposition towards sinners, what could we say other than praise him? What else could you say? This isn't just a, a random praise to God. It's praise for God in light of what was just said about his mercy and grace to sinners. And that's really the only reasonable conclusion you could have. You see, appreciating the significance of God's provision for sinful man and his willingness to use us in ministry to others should cause you to praise him. So we think about our title, Thank God for Saving and Using Me. Are you grateful for the ways that God has undertaken in your spiritual life? Are you grateful? Are you thankful? Are you, are you blown away by God's mercy and grace in your life? Do you see yourself as a trophy of his grace and his long-suffering and his mercy? Are you thanking him for that? Do you have a heart of gratitude for that? See, being reminded of his provision for your salvation, his purpose for your life, it should cause us to all be going through life with this song of verse 17, this song in our hearts, where we just praise you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for undertaking in my life in such amazing ways that you would count me to be faithful. You would put me into the ministry and you would enable me so that I could live a life that would bring you honor and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you for our time that we could spend here in your word. Thank you for your great love. Pray that we could live with a heart of praise and gratitude for all that you've done for us. Pray that we could get ourselves out of the way we could see that if we could just enjoy you or keep our focus on you, just be trusting you, resting in you, leaning into you, that then you'd be free through the power of your spirit to work in our lives so that we could live lives that would be true to your instructions and directions for our lives, that would be lived in a way that could bring you honor and glory, that would be a bright light into the darkness around us, that would be successful at accomplishing the, the